following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And, and I just want to start with this idea about what, what is a Christ-centered life? And I think oftentimes it's easy for us to have the wrong idea uh, about a Christ-centered life. Uh, maybe we have been influenced by people like Brother Lawrence. Anybody read Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God? Right? And if you've read the book, um, he's, he's a monk living in a monastery, and his job is washing dishes. And so he doesn't have a lot to occupy his brain with, so he, uh, he starts this, this discipline of this exercise of trying to think continually, moment by moment, of Christ's presence with us. And I think sometimes we get the idea that, that that's what it means to have a Christ-centered life where we're just constantly thinking about Jesus. Now, I want to say that, that's a great discipline, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful that Brother Lawrence had, had no life. And, uh, you know, the, the greatest worry about his whole life was, you know, uh, scrubbing a pot. As so we had lots of empty space in his brain to fill it with Jesus. I'm thankful for that. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try for that, but the reality is most of us... Life just works differently for us, right? I don't know about you, but I've tried, and I've I read Brother Lawrence, I'm going to do this. I'm going to like think about Jesus all the time. And like three minutes later, I was thinking about everything but Jesus, right? And the, and the reality is we live in a world and a time, and we have lives where we have responsibilities and duties, where our, our mental occupation can't be solely Jesus, right? But that's really a misunderstanding of what a Christ-centered life is about. And so we're going to see uh, in the book of Numbers, and as, as we look today at chapters 1 and 2, uh, what, what is a Christ-centered life? What does it mean for God to be with us? In Numbers, he was at the center of the camp, as we'll see. In the New Testament, Jesus is dwelling in our very heart. And what does that mean? And how do we live out uh, what we would call a Christ-centered life? Uh, and and how, how do we experience his presence with us? Um, uh, to really get into numbers, we need to do a quick review starting in Genesis, because uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are really written as a unit, which numbers is a part. And of course, it starts with Genesis. God created the world, created uh, everything in it. And, and when God did so, he was the center of creation. Uh, he was outside of creation, but it was all an expression of his own character and being. And of course, the Garden of Eden was the the pinnacle of his creation, and in it were, were Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve were not the center of the garden. God was the center of the garden. And everything about it was designed and created for man to be in fellowship with God, who was to be the center of their life. But of course we know Adam and Eve had other ideas, and they chose instead to make themselves the center of their world. And ever since then to this day, that's been the nature of mankind. We want to be the center of our universe, not God. And we have pushed God to the far fringes uh, of the universe out of our life. Uh, but God did not give up. He chose Abraham and made a covenant promise with Abraham that he would become a great nation and that uh, he would establish him in the land of Cana. And through time, uh, all the nations would be blessed. Uh, and, and God enters into this relationship with Abraham. And we know eventually uh, his, his children, uh, actually his great-grandchildren, end up in, in Egypt uh, where they live for 400 years and they fall into the oppression and slavery of the Egyptians. 
And God comes and he hears their cry and God rescues them and delivers them in the book of Exodus. And they are delivered from bondage in Egypt. And somewhere between uh, leaving Egypt and Mount Sinai, God comes to them and he enters into a covenant relationship again with the descendants of Abraham. And it's not a new covenant, it's really a reestablishment, a uh, restating of his original covenant with Abraham. And the point of it all was that God would, would be in relationship with them, that he would live with them. Uh, in Exodus, we also uh, get instructions about the tabernacle. And so we get a little bit of a picture of how this is going to work, that God's uh, presence is going to be represented in the ark and in the, in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Um, uh, then we looked at Leviticus, and Leviticus is really a handbook on worship. It's an instruction manual for how this new tabernacle was to be used, and all kinds of laws about uh, how uh, they as a people were to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices to atone for their sin and to cleanse themselves so that they could come into God's presence and approach him without being destroyed because of their sin. Uh, and, and so all those instructions, uh, the second half of Exodus and the whole book of Leviticus, uh, the people are camped out at Mount Sinai. And we come to uh, Numbers, and the people are still camped out at Mount Sinai. And they're still getting these instructions. But the focus now, as we enter the book of Numbers, is preparing to move. And they don't stay at Mount Sinai very long. And in fact, the book ends with them at the uh, just outside of the Promised Land, ready to enter uh, and so it's a book that's transitioning from Mount Sinai to the fulfillment of the promise and conquest of the land that God said he would give them. And the book breaks down into two main sections. Uh, the first generation, uh, sections, uh, chapters 1 to 25, looks at the, the first generation as they prepare to enter the promised land and their epic failure. And uh, we know that that first generation did not enter. And then chapters 26 to 36 look at the second generation prepares to enter. And for them, it's more successful. Right? Now, uh, I understand uh, how this goes, because I've read through the Bible a couple times at least. And I know how this works. You read Genesis, it's pretty good. Exodus is pretty exciting. And then you, get, you hit Leviticus. It's like, ooh, wow, this is hard. And there's like these rules and regulations about uncleanness and not eating this food and pigs and snakes and weird stuff, right? And then, but you get through Leviticus and then you come to Numbers and it's a bunch of names you can't pronounce and long lists of, of numbers. Right? And it's like, oh man, I'm going, to Gen- I'm, I'm, I'm going to Matthew. Let's go to John. Let's forget this, right? Uh, it is, it is easy to get kind of lost. But the book is really an, a book about the amazing demonstration of the depth of God's grace. Right? His incredible and unfailing faithfulness in the face of great grumbling, rebellion, and rejection. All right, so let's jump into uh, chapters 1 through 10. We're going to look today at, 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 at chapters 1 and 2. And we are going to be, it's going to be kind of more of a survey. We're not going to go through this verse by verse. <laughs> Let's talk today about the 47,000 Gadites, right? Uh, we're going to kind of survey. We're trying to get too bogged down in these lists. Um, as exciting as that would be, right? Um, and in the first 10 chapters especially, the focus is really this idea of God with us. God in the midst of the camp, 
right? So let's read through bits and pieces of it. Um, uh, Starting in chapter 1, verse uh, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of his house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you, from Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedeur, from Simeon, Shel- Shelumiel, the son of Zerushadai, from Judah, Nashon, the son of Abinadab, from Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, from Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, from the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedhazur, from Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. I read those list of names just to get to that name, Gideoni. Like Italians are everywhere. Um, from Dan, Ehiezer, the son of Amishadai, from Esher, Pagiel, the son of Okran, from Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, from Naphtali, Ahariah, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, head by head. As the Lord commanded Moses, so he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. And then we're not going to read, I'm going to spare you verses 20 to 43. It's basically a, biblic, a Bible spreadsheet, right? And it has a list of the tribes and, and uh, uh, the numbers of generations, the numbers of people, 20 years and up men, males, who were conscripted and enlisted to, to serve in essentially their army. And that's really what's happening here, is, is uh, God's instructing them to assemble and enlist an army. And every male, 20 years old and upward, was, uh, was conscripted, was uh, entered into service in, in this army as they were going to be going to, to conquer and to conquest. All right, we'll, look, we'll look at some more, um, and we'll read some more of it, uh, as we go through the, the passage. But um, in, in chapter 1, essentially, God enlists this army of every male, everyone, 20 years old and upward, uh, up to the oldest, right? So this is not an army or a service where you could retire, right? All the way up to the oldest, uh, signed up, name by name. Uh, In chapter 2, he then describes and and commands Moses to establish and lay out the camp. And I think I have a graphic for this, if we can go to the the picture. Um, and, And... Numbers can be a bit confusing, but if you take out all the hard names and you take out the numbers, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, what you get is a picture, right? And it's a pretty simple picture of the tribes of Israel camped around what? The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, right? And, And where is God in this picture? He's in the center, right? He's not just with them. Uh, he's not 
like a house plant, right? God is not with them like a house plant. You know, we have house plants and we, we bring uh, the outdoors into our house and in some corner of our living room there's a nice little plant to spruce things up, right? God with them was not like a house plant. He just resided in some little corner of the camp to kind of spruce things up. It's kind of a token presence. Now, he was there as the center of the camp. Everything revolved around God, who was the center of their life and their activity and their worship and their every event of their life. Right? He was the center. Um, and it's, it's, a, it, it's a bit uh, startling, really. And this was actually, in, in Moses' day, this would have been radical. Gods didn't, uh, the gods that they, the, the, the false gods, the idols that were worshipped, didn't live with people. Right? The idols were made as images, uh, as means of communicating with the gods, of attracting their attention. But they all believed that the gods themselves uh, were, were far off. Right? And they weren't living in their midst. They weren't interested in them. Right? They had to get their attention. Um, but here's a god, and not just any god, but the god who created the heavens and the earth. And as creator, he's not, he's not confined. He's not part of what he made. He's outside of it. And yet he comes into his creation, and not only into his creation, but he comes into this group of people, and he is in their midst, right? As the center of their life, the center of their camp. Uh, and when we read through the rest of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, we find that this has been God's purpose all along. God wants to be with us. Amazing truth, right? When Jesus came, he was Emmanuel. God with us. And he, John 1.14 says, He tabernacled among us. He tented among us. But he was here in our midst and in our presence. Um, this is God's great purpose in redemption, both in the Old and New Covenants, that he would be, once again, the center of our life. Uh, and so, so we could talk about a God-centered life, but really we could talk, and, and, and this passage really is a picture of a Christ-centered life. Because we know that everything in the Old Covenant was only a shadow and picture of what Jesus fulfilled. And so really, we can, we can talk not only about a God-centered life, but ultimately a Christ-centered life. So we're going to do that. And we want to uh, look at two basic questions this morning. First, what is the basis of a Christ-centered life? In other words, how, how does it come about that God is with us and at the center of our being? Second question, if that's true, then how do we walk in a Christ-centered life? How do we live and move and walk in this space of life where Christ is the center of our life? Well, first let's look at the basis. Um, uh, the basis of a Christ-centered life. As I said, I think, uh, and I don't know that Brother Lawrence was trying to say that our constant thinking of God was the basis. I don't know that he would say that, but oftentimes that's how it comes to be understood. That the basis of a Christ-centered life is our own, our own effort to somehow bring Jesus into our life and into our conscious thought and into our activities. And that if we can be successful at that, we can have a, great, a Christ-centered life. But Numbers paints a very different picture of how this works. <clears throat> and it is not by the Israelites' efforts in fact, it starts off in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Just re, 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 review these words. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, saying, Take a census of the people. Then in chapter 2, it starts the same way. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, 
the people of Israel shall camp uh, by his own standard with the banners of their fathers. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Um, this was God's idea, not Moses, not the Israelites. Right? It's super important to understand that um, that uh, God is with us as an act of his merciful faithfulness. His merciful faithfulness. Right? It is God's purpose to be with us. And if he's with us, there's no place he can be other than the center. He's God. And that's kind of how it works. And it's his purpose to fill that place. It was his design, as we saw in that picture, that the camp would be established this way. That he would be the center and everything would be around him and oriented to him and facing him. Right? It was by God's instruction and God's will and God's purpose um, that this took place. And, uh, and so it is, his, it is his merciful faithfulness that he is the center of our being and our life. It is merciful because he is a holy God and they were a sinful, rebellious people. Uh, they had already experienced this with the golden calf. You remember the golden calf incident? Uh, they, uh, Moses had gone up on the mountain and he was gone for a super long time. And they decided, oh, Moses has left us, and so is this God, so we need a new God. So they talked to Aaron, they said, make us a new God. And he makes this golden cap, and they begin to worship it. And uh, God's response to that, he says, uh, says, Moses, your people, (laughs) they weren't his people anymore, Moses, your people, uh, have, have rejected me, and I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. Remember that? Um, and it was God's, God was just and right to do that. And of course he doesn't, and, and uh, it was his plan all along, and Moses interceded, and God shows mercy to them. He makes a way of forgiveness and cleansing. But it's important to understand that it was, it was right for God to destroy them. Because the wages, the consequences, the penalty of sin is what? Death, right? Death. And they had sinned against him. Uh, but, but, but God is merciful in that he places himself in the midst of the sinful people as a holy God, and it is his mercy that does that. Right? And that's why in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, there's all these laws and regulations about how they can be uh, forgiven and find atonement through, uh, through the blood of a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice. And it was his mercy that he had made provision for that atonement, that forgiveness, and that cleansing. Uh, but it is also God's faithfulness. Uh, God had made a covenant promise to Abraham, and he was faithful to his word. Right? God's faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to his purpose. And his purpose is that he would be a God who is not a God for us far away, but he would be a God who is at the very center of our life and being and existence. Uh, he told uh, Abraham, he told Moses, and he told the people, I will be their God and they will be my people. And and that means I'm going to be in the midst of them. I'm going to be the center of all that they do. Not just a a, a footnote, but the main point of their life and existence. Uh, so, So the point is that it's God himself who puts himself in the center of the camp. And it's God himself who puts himself in the center of our life. If you have a Christ-centered life, it's only because Christ has put himself there. Not because of anything you've done. Right? Do you understand that? It is God's doing. 
uh, through the work of Christ, through the atoning, redeeming work of Jesus on the cross, that it's possible for him to dwell in us and with us and to be truly the center of our life. Uh, Not because we pray enough or we read the Bible enough or we become a monk where we have nothing else to think about but Jesus. It's because he has put himself at the very core and center of our life. You say, well, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, and, and certainly, you may not feel it. But oftentimes, we, we may not feel our life gets so distracted and our mind gets so on other things that we may feel like our life is anything but centered on Christ. That Christ is in any way uh, in the center of our being. But notice what Ephesians 3:14 through 17 says. It's a prayer of Paul. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, I could preach three sermons on this verse, which we don't have time for this morning, but Significantly, notice that it's according to the riches of God's glory, his purpose, his grace, that he strengthens us, that he makes it possible through his Holy Spirit for Christ to dwell in our hearts. And, and, uh, and God answers that prayer for every single follower of Christ. Right? His Spirit is doing a work in us, uh, upgrading and strengthening and fortifying our heart and our uh, which heart here is what? It's the center of our life, right? Our heart is an expression of the very center of our being, of our thoughts and our feelings and our, our will and our whole existence, right? And he says, so, so that Christ may live there through faith, right? And we'll see in a minute why faith is so important. Um, faith is our part of it, but it's not, uh, it's not anything we do that makes it happen. It's the work of God. So the the great reality is that God is with us. And if you have put your faith in Christ, he is in the center of your life. He won't won't be anywhere else. He is in your heart as the center of your life. Now, of course, we'll talk later about our part, what what we do in response to that. But God doesn't show up in your life as a a houseplant. He does not show up in your life as a houseplant. He is not living and dwelling in you as God with us as a houseplant that occupies some handy little corner in your, your soul somewhere, that if you randomly stumble into that room, you can pass by and go, oh, what a lovely plant. Right? No, I'm telling you, he comes into your life and he takes residence at the center. And I know there's all kinds of little things about God's house and you know how we put him in the closet and all that. I'm telling you, he's not staying there. right? Now, we'll talk in a minute. There's a place of where we walk in the reality of what, what Jesus has done. But Jesus will hold no other room than our heart. And it is the work of his grace and power. It is his merciful faithfulness that he is in us at all. And he comes in uh, as the center of our life, just as he was for for the camp. Now, of course, the Israelites, and as we say, uh, we'll see uh, later in Numbers, the the Israelites um, uh, didn't walk in. Uh, as they should with God in the center. And, and, and so uh, there was problems in that. They rejected ultimately his promise and his leading, as we'll see. Um, but 
even in the midst of their rejection and rebellion, God never left the center of the camp. God never left. Right? He was always there, reside, his, his, his presence there in the tabernacle. Right? He never has told Moses, okay, you've got to move the tent. <laughs> right? Move it up to the top of some faraway mountain because I'm done. Right? Even in their worst rebellion, he still occupied the center of the camp. Okay, so, so uh, let me just talk practically about a couple of things this means for us for him to be at the center of our life. Um, it's like, okay, well, that's all nice and cool. It's very symbolic, a little bit kind of out there. But what does it mean practically? Well, there's a couple of things that, uh, not an exhaustive list, but from this passage we see. First, if he's in the center of, of our life, it means that he is faithful to reveal himself to us. He is faithful to reveal himself to us. Uh, verse 1 again starts out, and, and chapter 2 starts the same way. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai at the tent of meaning. Now, it would be easy to look at that as just kind of a passing, um, unimportant detail, but actually in the book of Numbers, the speaking of God is extremely important, and it's a major theme or doctrine in the book. In fact, this phrase, the Lord spoke to blank, Moses or Aaron or the people, whoever, that phrase is found 50 times in the book of Numbers. 50 times. Right? It's not a passing detail. It's a theme. Not only that, but uh, one commentator uh, noted that this divine speech is recorded over 150 times in the book of Numbers. Divine speech, 150 times in 20 different ways. Right? So it's not just through Moses, and at, not only at the tent of meeting, but over and over, God is speaking. And the point of all that is that God is very talkative. <laughs> right? God is very talkative. Yeah. Jesus is the Word, right? God is all about speaking and communicating. And if God is in the center of our life, He's got stuff to say, right? He is not there as some silent force that we have to kind of guess, wow, I wonder what God's thinking today, right? You ever been on people like that that are that just, you know, it's like, it's like what's, the, what's the expression? Pulling turnips? Is that the word? trying to drag words out of them, right? Sometimes we may feel like God is like that. Like we're, we're going to drag, uh, drag words out of him. It's not true. God is a God, if he's in us, he's the center. He's speaking constantly. Uh, now, we don't know how God spoke to Moses in Israel. The Bible is not very clear. In fact, uh, throughout the Old Testament, God is speaking all the time. And sometimes we know, sometimes there's visions, sometimes there's dreams, sometimes he shows up in a theophany, a, a, an appearance of himself, sometimes it's through an angel, uh, the angel of the Lord being God himself. Um, it says that Moses went to the tent of meeting and, and God met him there face to face or literally mouth to mouth and talked to him. Uh, we don't know what that meant. Um, uh, and it doesn't really matter. The point is they knew it was God speaking. Somehow they knew that it was authoritatively the word of God. Uh, in us, in the New Testament times, uh, we have many ways that God speaks, but two that are clear and that are certain. One is through scripture. Yeah. Praise God that God, uh, he's kind of thinking this through, and, and he, he saw to it that when he spoke words, that it got written down, and it got recorded and it was kept. 
And God oversaw the process of how those words were put to pen and were recorded on Scripture. And he's been very active throughout history to preserve his word. Right? And so we can be absolutely con- confident that, it, that this book is the inspired word of God, reliable and authoritative. Right? And if you're confused on that one, then you've got to work this out, right? That God's a big God, he created the world, and it's not a problem for him to ensure the accuracy of his word. Now, I know you'll come up to me and you'll say, well, yeah, but what about textual variance? And da-da-da-da. I'm telling you, the message is unchanged from its original form, right? We may not always understand it. We may misinterpret it. But the message is reliable, right? God saw to it that, and Paul could... Paul and Jesus both could quote it authoritatively as his word. And so God is still speaking through this word, and it's not something that he spoke long ago, and now it's just a dead book that that we hope we could uh, hear his word. He still speaks through his word. It's it's a word that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So believe me, God is speaking, and he speaks through this book to us uh, constantly. Right? but secondly, uh, God speaks to us through his spirit. Right? Uh, he's put his spirit in us. And the, the New Testament tells, tells us the Holy Spirit teaches us. He reminds us. Uh, he leads and directs us. Right? In fact, so much so that Paul can say in Romans 8, uh, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Right? If, if the Holy Spirit is not speaking and teaching and leading and directing, you're not a child of God. Uh, Paul says, right? That's how much together the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life and our salvation are connected, right? Um, So so God is speaking. Now, now we may not always be listening, uh, but uh, he is speaking and directing and leading in our life, right? And I don't know all the mysterious ways that God does that, uh, but, but, but that's a certainty that we know as his children. Second thing, uh, it's true is that God is, is faithful not only to speak, but he, he, he's faithful to lead us. Okay, so when God speaks, it's not kind of like Aesop's fables. Like he's not just given some kind of random generic wisdom about, you know, some moralism. I mean, and, and certainly the Bible has g- generic wisdom like that. But, but, but God's speaking to us is specific. And, and it's, it's personal. He, he's directing in our life, right? He's the center of our life. He's in our heart. And, and part of that picture being in the center of the camp, we see that God's directing the activities and events and goals of their life. In fact, day by day, we'll see as we go through the book of Numbers, he's directing the very places they camp. Right? He's directing how the camp gets set up. And, and not just generically. He's very specific. Uh, he says, I want it this way. In chapter 2, he says, um, he says, I want... Uh, those who camp on the east side toward, toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah. Very specific, right? And along with Judah shall be uh, a, a couple other tribes, Issachar and, um, and then Zebulun, right? Which is interesting because uh, that was the place of honor. Okay, the east side facing the sunrise was, was the place of, of first rank. And Judah got that place. But you know what? Judah was not the firstborn. The firstborn of all of, the, of Jacob's children was, was Reuben. God says, no, I don't want Reuben. I want Judah. And I looked forward to the day when when David would come, and ultimately through David when Jesus would come. 
So, so, so God's leading is very specific, and, and He has plans, and He orders and organizes the camp. He doesn't say just, he doesn't say, well, I want you to just camp around the tabernacle. No, He lays out where each tribe, each place, each standard, and it's ordered and structured because He's leading in very clear and direct, specific ways. Um, and I want to just encourage you, uh, encourage us, that, that God is faithful as the center of our life to lead us. And I talk to people often and they're worried about God's will. And it's good to be worried about God's will. We should be concerned about following God, about doing his will. Um, but, but sometimes we get this idea that God's will is this great, grand mystery. And, and we have to somehow, like, like solving a puzzle, we have to figure out God's will for our life. And we, uh, you know, we labor and we pray and that's good. And, and we make decisions, and we're like, ah, did I make the right decision? Well, let me assure you, this is how it works. God is big enough and powerful enough and sovereign, sovereign enough to make sure uh, you know his will. Now, I'm not saying he's going to write you an email. That would make it a lot easier, like, you know, Jesus at God.com, do this. I, I wish it was that simple, right? I wish he made it that clear. Um, the summer I was at, uh, at a Bible camp and uh, talking to one of the counselors, and he was just agonizing over decisions. Do I go to this, this one internship over here, or do I go to another internship over there? And he was just stressing out about this. And I said, man, you know, God is going to make sure that, that you do what's right. right? God's going to work it out. Uh, and, and God has great ways of closing doors and opening doors. Um, and, and you see, we, we, we've got this wrong idea that somehow we can choose badly, right? Now, the truth is we can choose badly. And as I said, Israel chooses badly. We'll see in a bit uh, later on. They choose quite badly. But when we choose badly, it is never because we don't know what God wants. It is always because we know and we don't want it, right? That's the risk. When God has made it clear... And we refuse what he's, what he's calling us to. Honestly, when I came to Thailand, that's where I was. God made it very clear, Tim, I want you to go to Thailand. I'm like, no, I want to go to Thailand. I don't speak Thai. I'm happy where I am, right? And, and God was persistent. And I had a choice to either reject what I knew he was calling me to or to surrender and to follow him, right? And I'm confident with God as the center of our life, reigning and dwelling in our very heart, in the very center of our thoughts, emotions, will, and, and, and ideas. Believe me, he knows how to make his purpose clear and to direct you. Right? Um, next thing, uh, he is faithful to provide a mediator. It's interesting, God uh, inscripts this army, right? Signs up all the people of uh, 20 years and up in, in the nation of Israel. But it says in chapter 1, um, Verse 36, but of the people... Uh, no, 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 it's not verse 36. Um, oh, verse 47, sorry, verse 47. Uh, he says, but the Levites were not listed along with them, that is, with all the other tribes, by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and, sh- and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. Now, he does actually take a census of them later, but it's for a different purpose. Uh, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony 
and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. Now, um, the Levites were, were exempted from military service and they were actually conscripted to another job. They're, they were assigned to take care of the, the tabernacle, to, to set it up, to tear it down, to carry it, and to be a, a buffer around it. Um, now, we, we may think about the priests and the Levites. The, the Levites came out of the, the, I'm sorry, the priests were part of the tribe of Levi. Okay, so here Moses is, is lumping together the priesthood and, and the, the rest of the Levites as one group. And we may think, and we think about priests, we think about preachers, we think they're kind of soft people who would make really bad soldiers. Some of that's probably true of me. Okay, I did, I did not enlist, I, I did not go into the military service, and it was probably a good thing. Um, I, I, I don't know, I think I would have done all that well. And that's kind of how we think. And we may think of the Levites that way. It's like, well, God assigned them to that because he saw they were all kind of soft, weak, bad warriors. But actually, do you know why they got picked? Remember the story, going back to the story of the golden calf. Remember what happened? Moses came down off the mountain and the people were going crazy. Right? They were worshiping and it was chaotic. Which, by the way, is, is, is just totally opposed to the camp we see now where it's structured and ordered. Right? God brings order. But it was chaotic and people were out of control. And, and, and Moses says, you know, we've got to put a stop to this. And the Levites, it says, the Levites stepped up and they took their swords and they killed 3,000 Israelites. As it turns out, the fiercest tribe of all was the Levites. Right? They were the most fierce and the most eager to take up the sword and to kill people. They didn't think twice because they defended the holiness and honor of God. In many ways, you could argue they were the fiercest tribe. Right? Now, if I'm general, the general of this army... I want my fierce, I want the Marines in front, right? These guys are the fiercest. I'm not going to put them at church. <laughs> I want them out leading. I want, you know, forget Judah. Put the Levites there. Give them the swords. Let them, like these guys are warriors, right? But God doesn't do that. Well, why? Why does he waste, this, waste his West best warriors on church, right? Well, well, he explains why. He says, when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Right? See, they weren't just, they weren't just priests. They, they, they were warriors who were set there to guard the temple, to guard the very holiness of God. The people of Israel shall, shall t- pitch their tents company by company, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard by tribes. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. See, here's the problem. From the very beginning, it was very clear that uh, for God to be in the middle of the camp was risky business. Um, The people were at risk of being destroyed by the holy wrath of God if they were sinful. And so God sets up this this protective barrier, uh, the the Levites. And the Levites were specially consecrated, specially set apart. And they were called to another level of holiness. But more importantly, through the priesthood, they were called to the ministry of mediating between Israel and God. 
And they were the ones who entered the, the Holy of Holies. It was the priests who brought the sacrifices, right? And so God was faithful to provide this, this mediator between the sinful people and the holy God so that he would not destroy them. And of course, it's a great picture of Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus is our mediator. He stands between us and a, a sinful creatures and a holy God. And through his own blood and his own life, he makes sure that we are cleansed and pure and we can enter into God's presence uh, through his righteousness. Right? Uh, so God is faithful uh, to not say, I'm going to live in your midst and you're all going to just die as part of it. Right? No, he, he provides uh, a, a, a go-between, a mediator between him and the people. So Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He is our mediator. And we have peace with God through him. Uh, finally, uh, he is faithful to us personally and corporately. And we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but um, chapter 1, verse 2 says, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head. Now, this is impressive. As it turns out, we didn't read this part, but um, when, you, when you get the list, head by head, it, come, it came out to 600,550 people. Now, there's a lot of debate. I'm not going to go into the debate about the numbers in numbers. Um, it, it, could have been that, it could have been a smaller number. Either way, it was a really long list. Right? And, and it would have been easier to say, okay, just summarize, you know, a tribe of Judah this many, but he says, no, I want you to list head by head. Okay, and of course, that didn't get in, in Scripture, but, uh, but it, was, it was listed. They wrote down every person's name because every person mattered. Right? God, God was in the midst of them individually and personally right? in, a, in a one-on-one way. But it's also, it says that, uh, that they were there by clans and by fathers' houses. Verse 16 uh, these were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes and the heads of the clans. Um, and they were, they were registered uh, clan, by father's ha- uh, clan by clan by father's house according to the numbers of the names. Um, God is with them individually, but is also with them corporately. Right? He, it was about the whole community. Uh, same is true of us. We are members individually of one body, the body of Christ. Right? And that's a great New Testament teaching. God called you personally, and he has gifted you individually as a part of his body. Some as eyes, some as a foot, some as a hand, some as an ear. Each member uh, is significant and vital and important to the whole body. Right? Paul says every member has importance and worth and relevance. And God is concerned about each individual part and member. But the cool thing about the body image is this, is that um, our purpose and our relevance and our significance um, is, is defined partly by what we are as a hand or a foot or an eye. But the reality is our relevance and meaning is, is, is nothing if we're not part of the body, right? 
like a foot that's detached from the body is first of all just gross, right? Your foot gets cut off. It's kind of disgusting. And it makes the foot useless. It has no meaning or function or purpose except for how it relates to the community, the body. Right? And that's true for us. God is, is concerned very much about you, but you are a part of something much bigger and greater than yourself. You know, in, in Western cultures, we are overly, and this is maybe a stereotype, but overly individualistic. And it's all about the individual. It's all about my personal relationship with Jesus. By the way, you know, that's not anywhere in the Bible. You know that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's all about your personal relationship with Jesus. Now, you have one, right? And God does care about you as an individual. But we are overly individualistic in the West. And community becomes unnecessary. And leaders uh, are simply peers who are often seen as a threat or a problem. Um, in in Asian cultures on the other hand it's all about the group all about the community and oftentimes uh, a leadership uh, exercises absolute authority as part of the hierarchy of the group and the individual is lost but praise God he's, he's about you as an individual he's also about what you belong to as a community right? that we are here as the body of Christ and that body has leaders chosen and appointed by God she talks about here, um, and, and, and it's structured and ordered by God. Uh, it's not chaotic, right? Uh, when, when the community of God and, and Christ is in the center of that community, it's orderly, and it's structured, and there's, there's, there's purpose to it. So, so just to summarize these points real quickly, a Christ-centered life is not the result of our effort to drag God, perhaps reluctantly, into our life but that he, by his grace, has saved and enabled us so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. A Christ-centered life is not so much that we are continually thinking about him, but the amazing realization that he is continually thinking about us. You think about that? Christ-centered life means God is in our life and he's constantly thinking about you and I. Uh, Scripture says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God where he is continually interceding on our behalf. Christ-centered life means God has got you. He is thinking about you. His heart and his mind is on you. He has taken every, every step to save you and to redeem you and to make it possible that you can be in relationship, close, intimate relationship with him and to order and structure your life with purpose and meaning in his kingdom. Um, Let me close with uh, one, two, three, four things, um, three things that that we can do in response to this. There's there's a lot, but three quick things that we do in response to this. Um, It's a reality. What I'm trying to say is Christ-centered life is a reality. It's something God has done. But there is a sense in which we walk in that or don't, right? So how can we walk in it? Well, first of all, uh, we need to fix our focus. We do need to fix our focus on him. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, it says, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Right? All of them were to open the doors of their tent, so when they got up in the morning and went out, there in front of them, 
was the very presence of God, right? They were to fix and orient their life toward God. And certainly, we should be doing that, right? We should be um, uh, focusing our heart and attention. And it doesn't mean that we do it all the time. It doesn't mean like if I go through a whole day and I've gotten busy with my work and I forgot about Jesus that I fail. But it does mean that the general direction and focus of our life is Godward, right? Which means that... Uh, that we are turning away from this world and, and the things that this world offers. Right? We're finding purpose and meaning in the things of God. We're, uh, as, as Paul says, to seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not on the things of this earth. Right? So we are, we, we are fixing our attention on him in worship and in, in affection and love and devotion. Uh, secondly, we listen and learn and follow and obey. Uh, uh, it says that the people were faithful to obey. Um, each chapter begins with God speaking and each chapter ends this way. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded. They were obedient. In the chapter 2, thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards and so they set out, each one uh, in his clan, according to his father's house. They were obedient. Um, now, just to be clear about this, um, we must be obedient. We must be attentive. But we're not attentive to his word just to gain information. The goal is to be obedient. Um, and being attentive means that when we, we come to God's word, not with our own agenda. Right? The problem is we can read the Bible and we can read it with so many of our own opinions, ideas that God can't really speak to us. We can't really listen. Listen means we lay aside our own ideas and opinions and agendas. Right? I was talking to a guy one day, a pastor actually, and he told me that, uh, that he, he believed God was love and, and God could not be a God of wrath or be angry. Oh, that's kind of interesting. And I said to myself, well, you know, in the Bible, uh, there are 640 references to the wrath and anger of God. I said, like, have you read the Bible? I didn't quite say it in those words. It was probably something like that. Have you ever, like, read the Bible? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, he says, but I just don't pay attention to those verses because they don't fit with my ideas about God. Like, as I take a few steps back. <laughs> wow. Right? So we've got to come to God, laying aside our ideas and opinions of, and, and, and hear truth that oftentimes will make us uncomfortable. The thing is, if the Bible's not making you uncomfortable, there's something wrong, right? Because that, 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 means, that means you are so in tune with God that he never needs to correct your thinking, right? And I know most of you, and I'm pretty sure that's not true. If you know me, you know that's not true. Absolutely not true, right? God's word should be making us uncomfortable, and that's a good thing, right? Because it means we are be, being confronted with God's truth. We need to respond to it. And we need to hear and listen and obey. We need to do what it says. Um, and, and I want to be clear, this obedience is not so that God will show up. Right? We're not trying to be obedient and be a good person so that God will somehow come into my life and be the center. Right? Remember, that's not the basis. He's already there. Right? We, we should be obedient because he's the center. See, that was what the laws were all about. God, in, in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, the laws were not given so that, it's like, well, if you keep all these rules, I might come visit you. Right? That's not what it was. 
Instead, it was this. He's like, I'm living with you. And if you don't want to die in the process, here's, here's how this has got to work, right? Now, some, some of you guys you know, can remember back to when you were dating your wife. I remember how when you were dating your wife, you did all kinds of crazy things to convince her she, she should like you, right? And you bought flowers. You bought flowers. Like you went into a flower shop. Like what was wrong with you, right? Because like you haven't been in one since, right? Since you've been married, have you been in a flower shop? Right? You did all these things because you wanted to convince her that, that you were worth it, right? And so, so that's one kind of, of pleasing uh, your girlfriend, your fiancé, right? But then you got married, right? And once you're married, you know, she's, she moved in. She's living with you. You won. Victory, right? Conquest. You succeeded. So now you don't have to keep those rules anymore. Amen. Hallelujah, right? Oh, no, right? No, no, that's another reason for keeping those rules. Now you keep those rules because she lives with you, right? And because you know life doesn't go good, don't go well, if you're not behaving, right? Right? And, and, and that's a good thing, right? It's because you're together and, and you need to respect and love and, and treat each other and, and fo- follow the, the laws that your wife lays down or that your husband lays down, right? Because life works better, right? Well, that's, that's what's happening here. It's because they are living with God. It's because God is in the center of our life that we need to walk in obedience and, and pay attention to his word because he is a holy God. And that brings to the last point. We need to guard his holy presence. Um, we, 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 we have in us, we are, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, who, who died for us, who, who gave his life for us, lives in our heart. Right? Do we hold that treasure as something holy and sacred? Right? Is it a sacred trust to us? And, and that should have huge impacts in, what, in, how, in our thought life, in what we look at, in, in how we behave, in, in the focus and direction of our life. If God is holy, right, we, we should honor him with a life that is striving to be holy, to worship him, to praise him, to hold him. And it really is the beginning of worship. Right? To hold him as holy and sacred. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.